everyone had a terrific 4th of July and welcome to the Man on Second podcast on Real Voices of the Game. I'm Joe Forsaro joined by Dave D'Agostino, our producer and co-host. And today we have a our special guest who's no stranger to the show, Stan Meek. We figured to get Stan on this time because the draft's coming up. We had a lot of stories and a lot to dive in a lot to dive into. But uh, we hope everyone had a great great uh, 4th of July weekend. We are recording this on July 5th. And, um, you know, we're, we're excited. You know, baseball season's up and running, and, and it's a really good time, and draft's on the way. There's a lot going on. And before we get to Stan, let's bring in Dave. Dave, I hope you had a great fourth, my friend. Yeah, it was fun. We got a chance to slow down a little bit, spend time with family, as we all we kind of talked about a little bit before we recorded. And, uh, yeah, this, this time of year gets busy with baseball. You've got the all-star break. You have the trade deadline. You have the draft coming up. Uh, Hall of Fame inductions right around the corner. So, um, it's a fun time uh, for us this summer, too. But uh, to, just to our audience, we we, we kind of let the cat out of the bag a little bit, but I'll throw it out there. I don't think it'll affect us in any way, in a negative way anyway. We're 80 shy of 20,000 subscribers now. We're hoping Stan pushes us over the top today. Um, just make sure you download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. If you can do the rate and review, we can beat the analytics of the podcast world, much like we do in Major League Baseball now. We're trying to anyway, and then Joe can keep providing you with great content here every week. I'll keep the preamble short because we've got a lot to cover today. Um, I'll let you get right away with Stan here. This is episode, Joe, we're on episode 219 right now. Tonight. Yeah, we're growing it. and we, we got a lot of new shows, and Dave will talk more about that. Dave, just kind of let some people know before we bring Stan in what we got, you know, teed up. We got new shows out as well. We do. We have our flagship show, Coaching Kernan, still going strong right now. We have, uh, you know, Sal Marinello runs the Hot Corner with Coach Sal. A lot of good tidbits on health, nutrition, and life there ties it into all of our baseball talk. Uh, we have a new show, or well, not not you know, it's newer. Jim Cott has done tremendous work for us with Cott's Corner. He'll be on later on today. We have Jim Rooney, former uh, Brewer pitching coordinator and uh, advanced scouting director with the Milwaukee Brewers. He has a new show called Toe the Rubber, and then one of my favorites. Not that Jim's not. I love talking to Jim every day, but Bob Schaefer. Bob Schaefer uh, has a show with us, which is straight up uh, fundamental baseball, and his is called Touch Em All. So Jim's is more about development of youth all the way up to major leagues, and Bob is kind of hitting on those topics that we don't see as much anymore. Of course, we've got Joe, your show, Man on Second. Uh, Will George, Mark Wiley run a Day at the Yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will, which we love so much. Jeff uh, Fry as well, right? I'm sorry? Kelly? Right. Kel- yeah, Kelly Franklin-Throop is, is now running a date in October with KFT. Uh, she's a newer one, too. Hits kind of the legal side of things. We did the bankruptcy case with the that affects all of us watching, trying to stream baseball and and uh, the blackouts that occur. And we, we also have a, a gentleman that's uh, he's going to come on as more of a spot guest than do his own show. But uh, Len Furman was on as a guest, and he is the sports time traveler. He does an interesting blog. And we talked back and forth, and I think it benefits both sides. He's going to come on as kind of a spotlight interview just to highlight um, some some big issues that he sees. And basically, he travels back in time from that day, 50 years, and uncovers what happened in sports that day. And really, he is a time traveler. He, he came on the show, and it was almost that Field of Dreams type of moment where you get done listening to him share. Gets, I mean, he gets, gets you right back there, the way he paints a picture. Uh, yeah, no. and I, did, I think I interrupted you when you talked about Fry show. We got Jeff, yeah, and then, uh, then Jeff Fry, obviously, she gone. He's jet setting right now. He's he's traveling the globe, uh, doing clinics and speaking, and he'll be back with us uh, after the All Star break doing his regular show. So uh, we've got a great lineup right now. We have uh, we're talking to a few other individuals that are trying to fit in in their schedules, but great baseball people, um, base people that are trying to help get our game back in a way without uh, sacrificing some of the good things that we're seeing, you know, in the game today, because we are seeing some good things in the game. So 
Um, but lo- love our crew. Uh, we're, we're growing bit by bit and it's growing organically. We never, we never set out in the beginning to do this, um, you know, grow this big. It just started out with us doing a little round table, Kevin, myself, Will George and Sal Marinello. And what we see today is kind of spawned out of that. Yeah, we want to wish Kevin happy birthday. Kevin Kernan, he had a big birthday. He's a Yankee doodle dandy. He was born on the 4th of July. So uh, happy birthday to Kevin. And, and of course, our guest today is, is welcome and is a big part of what we're doing. And, and Stan's uh, kind of got that open invite to be on whenever he can. But we know he's enjoying, he's enjoying retirement. But we try to pick his brain as much as we can, as much as it fits in his schedule. Stan, welcome, my friend. We kept you waiting way too long. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. Yeah, just enjoying the holidays and the grandkids. And we've had a little wiffle ball going over at the Meek House. So it's been pretty good with the guys. And uh, so appreciate being on. Enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Stan, a couple of weeks ago, I, I vacationed out in Arizona seeing my boy and took in a couple of Diamondback games. And uh, so one when the Diamondbacks played against the, the Phillies. So I had a chance to run over and, and say a quick hi to JT Real Muto. And uh, and he's like, I said, hey, I'm doing stuff. And he goes, don't forget to you know, ask Stan about how I got drafted and uh, you know, let's kind of dump, uh, dive into that Stan, because you, you've related even before in this show and we've talked many times, but as a refresher with the draft coming up, Rinder back in 2010, I believe third round pick uh, you guys at Miami make a, a very interesting selection in a shortstop uh, position wise at a high school out of Oklahoma to take uh, your listeners through that story one more time. Okay, well, it was an interesting because that, that story actually started the previous fall, and I was simply watching the state football championship, and uh, Carl Albert High School, where JT went to school, was uh, in the championship game, and he was a quarterback, and, for, and I just picked up the game late in the game, and they mentioned that this particular guy, JT, was on his way to Oklahoma State as a shortstop on a baseball team, and we had lost our our scout here, we had moved from Oklahoma to Texas, so we really didn't have anybody covering this state for about three or four months. Uh, so when the new guy was getting ready to come back, we hired a guy to come back in here and cover it. I mentioned to him this, and I said, hey, listen, next spring, make sure you get over and see this guy because uh, watching him, and I was in the process of watching him take a, a team down the field. He carried the ball like 13 consecutive times on the final drive, scored with about 30 seconds to go to win I think it was that coach's like seventh state championship. And all they talked about on the whole drive was what an athlete JT was. And obviously I could see that in the game. So we went over there the next spring. We get over there and the coach says to me, he goes, he sees me coming up and I've known the guy for a long time. He sees me coming up to the game. And so he says, oh boy, bad day. And I go, what's the bad day? And he goes, well, you came to see JT, right? And he goes, yeah. He said, well, my pitcher's tender. He can't pitch. So I'm going to have to pitch the catcher. And so we're going to have to take JT off short and put him behind the plate. And I said, is he ever caught? And he goes, no, he's never caught. I don't think he's ever caught. He's never caught in high school, like, you know, the last four years. So I get to see him actually catch, which was uh, the kind of athlete he was. Everything that, you know, you'd look for an athlete he presented on a baseball field. But you would have never known that. I would have never known that had I not actually gotten to see that. So. He, you know, he gets back there and he doesn't really know how to set up, but he's really athletic. His hands are great. And lu- and luckily the first guy, guy walked the guy on like four pitches and like the first pitch a guy tried to steal. And uh, we grade on a 20 to 80 scale uh, in, in our, in our game, every tool we grade 20 to 80. And the, he, his feet were like crazy how fast they were. And he threw about a seven, about a 70 arm to second base and threw the guy out which like took my breath away right away. And I thought, you know, I'm shocked if he had that kind of an arm. And then he happens to be facing um, Fulmer, Mike Fulmer, who ended up winning. He was a junior in high school at that time, but a high school in Oklahoma. He ended up winning the rookie of the year with Detroit later. Uh, anyway, he's facing him. He's throwing 93 or four in the first fastball. He saw he hit it over the batter's eye. And then the next time up, he hits a ground ball, pulls it in the hole and runs four, one something, which is definitely plus uh, at least plus runner. And he did everything you could do on a baseball field that day as a catcher. And so I went and found the football coach who'd won his seven state championships. And I asked him during the game, go tell me about this guy. He said, I've sent players everywhere, Oklahoma, Texas, Oklahoma state. And he goes, I've never had a guy made as good as this guy. So of course my head's completely spinning. 
and uh, the game's over. And I asked JT, I said, hey, you know, when I met with him, I said, hey, what about we, we had interest in you as a catcher? And again, the perfect line, he never hesitated. Whatever gets me to the big leagues the fastest is fine with me. So, you know, it was like one of those, you couldn't, you couldn't write that. You, uh, if you wrote that, you go, oh, that's fiction. There's no way that can be true. But we did not see him again. We stayed out. That was early March. And I told our area guy, do not go back because that day we checked the whole park. It was a Monday. No one there but the two of us. No one. The scene catch. So I said, we're not going to go back. So we did not go back in that ballpark to see him until we drafted him. And, and, you know, we just had a, we just knew we saw everything we needed to see and he was, the makeup was great and he wanted to do that. And, and he knew how hard it would be because, you know, he just did. And, um, so we signed him and, you know, he got, got out and we had a great catching coach and it was tough on him early, but he just, he's just the makeup of, uh, you know, I had, a, I had a friend of mine that through the years was a, had been a catcher in college. And I asked him, I said, when you transition a guy from, from a position to catch, what's the first thing you look for other than obviously his athleticism? He said, he said the makeup. He said, because the, what's going to happen to a catcher is he's going to be catching bullpens and everybody else is over there taking batting practice. And he's going to get beat up a lot. If his makeup's not great, he's going to throw in that catching gear and go get his glove and go play third or short or left field or whatever. So you better have makeup. And I would tell you that one of the things that makes JT great is his makeup. So great story. And so we draft him and people were shocked that we drafted him. They had no idea that would happen. And fortunately it worked out. So real happy for JT. You you really touched on something and and it triggered my memory because uh, you had pretty much success doing this with another infielder who was drafted as an infielder, who everyone knows because of his brother, because he pitches for the Phillies, but they both went to LSU in, in the NOLA brothers. And you drafted Austin NOLA. And even though his catching career kind of took off when he left Miami, talk about his transition as a refresher. And, you know, because we, we, you know, you know, this uh, this network, we're all about the grassroots and stuff. We, we're hoping we got a lot of parents and a lot of young players that are playing and, you know, that are invested in the game, that they could see your path to the big leagues might not be what you think it is. Exactly. I, I, I've said that to a lot of kids along the way. They say, you know, I want to be this or that. And everybody wants, you know, the young kids, they all want to play short. And I get it. That's where the ball comes. That's where the action is. Uh, that's where you get to kind of show off your skills and it's a fun place to play. And so I get all that. So he, and he was a shortstop at LSU. Uh, he was a senior. We were kind of looking for a budget saver and we were in the fifth round. So we made a little deal financially that saved us some money for later on in the draft. Uh, but we didn't really, when we saw him, we thought literally he might have a chance. He had good hands. He had good feet. The bat was a little bit of a question. So, but we thought he might end up being uh, a kind of utility type player. And then really credit to player development as they saw him. You know, he didn't quite hit like we wanted, but they saw a lot of tools, again, that they thought would fit behind the plate. And after knowing him and being with our player development guys, they said, boy, this guy's got the makeup. and He's kind of a grinder. He's a tough guy, and he, he's willing to crawl in back there. So we let's try this. And so they really tried it. And, and I think he started maybe in double A, and then he went to triple A. And I saw him catch a little bit in triple in A. And, uh, you know, it looked like if the bat would come along enough that he had a chance because, again, you know, shortstops, their hands and feet are pretty good. They wouldn't be at short. So that was a transition. And athletically, he was fine back there. And, uh, you know, as it's turned out, he's had a pretty nice career as a catcher. So you're right. What you start out as doesn't always end up in the same spot. Another one we had real quickly I actually saw Austin Barnes, who, you know, caught in a World yep. Series or two for for the, yep. for the Dodgers. We saw, I saw him, I walked into Arizona State, he was playing second base for Arizona State. And then somewhere in the game, there was a tr- switch or something, and they moved him back behind the plate, like the fourth or fifth inning. Uh, so we caught the rest of the game, and the scout and I were sitting there, and we both went, wow, did, have you ever seen him catch? Not really. Well, we saw him catch. But we'd also seen him play second. And so we took him, I think we took Austin, I don't know, like eighth round maybe, and uh, yeah. made him, a, you know, again, in minor leagues. He played some middle infield force, uh, but they also transitioned him to catching. So we've had like three of those guys. We had like three of those guys through the years. And so, you know, 
try to find the right place for a guy. Let people who know what they're doing help you with that. If you're willing to play wherever, you got a much better chance to to have a career, whether it's in college or, or further on. Yeah, I'm sure Dave wants to jump in since his boys are catchers, uh, and he probably has some questions. Dave? No, I, I love the message because actually Jim Rooney and I talked about this yesterday. We, we dove into the grassroots of baseball, and – these kids and parents and coaches start typecasting kids at the age of eight and nine. He's a shortstop. He's a catcher. He's a pitcher. And they don't learn any other positions. How detrimental is that to the overall development of a kid um, if they're typecast early on like that? Yeah, it's, I just think it's not fair to the kid because, again, as they, you know, here are kids who knows what he is physically at eight or nine, and all of a sudden they start to develop and their body changes. And so if, if you start thinking, well, you're going to limit pigeonhole him to one spot, I just think you're limiting what maybe the possibilities are. You know, we I saw a kid one time, I coached Legion Ball one time, and we had a kid, uh, we were trying to figure out our pitching, and some one of the kids, and I was doing it actually in the summer when I was coaching here at Oklahoma at the time before I ever started in the pro ball. And so the Legion's guys, I said, hey, who can pitch and whatever. And this this kid was playing catch out there, and he said, I've never pitched in my life. And he, I've always been a first baseman, but his arm worked really well. So I said, well, you can get on the mound and try to throw because your arm works the right way like a pitcher's arm works, and your body works like a pitcher's body works. Put him on the mound. He ended up doing great in the summer. He got a chance to go to, to Pan American University as a left-handed pitcher and then was I don't think he ever got the big leagues, but I think the triple A for a long time was a left-handed pitcher. So that was out of the blue, but it's, 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 uh, when you start doing that to a young kid, eight or nine, and, and most parents, you know, want them to be the pitcher or they want them to be the shortstop. Well, there's a lot of other places to play. So, uh, boy, don't do that. Just, just try, I would say, try to play everywhere you can play. So the more you know about each position, the better off you're going to be when the time comes. Yeah. And you're watching guys that are, on the brink of being drafted, as, as you talked about the three eventual catchers. And, I mean, you shuffled the deck with them uh, late in the game right before the draft. When you're watching players like that, when you're out evaluating, and you mentioned you know, what, what caught your eye, the makeup of these three guys that made them think they could be a catcher, are you drafting for need? Are you drafting for a certain athleticism and athletic type, and then you'll finish the product? What, or is it, I'm, or is it different every time? I mean, what's the mindset when you're out there watching a player in that regard? Well, in the amateur draft, I would tell you most of the clubs that I know, and I know what we did. We never drafted for need because you need everything. You never have enough of anything. You know, teams think they have six or seven or eight or nine major league starters, and they end up needing twelve. So you, you never have enough. So. We would always draft for what we thought was the best, uh, the best upside package of tools we could find, and and one of the things that goes into those tools is the makeup. That's kind of the sixth tool we always talk about. So, uh, we wanted guys who had you know athleticism. Uh, the more athleticism, the better, because they could make adjustments quicker. And you know, to to be an athlete, you got to work at being an athlete. You got to get out and play. You got to move around. You got to. I like them playing other sports because I think basketball makes you a better athlete. You're up and down the floor. You're moving around. You're doing a lot of things. So I would tell kids, you know, we we live in the day of specialization. Everybody's got their own hitting coach. Everybody's got their own pitching coach. Everybody. What they need to do is just one. They need to get out and play wiffle ball when they're a kid with the with the kids in the in the neighborhood. And just go play and understand. You learn the game and you learn how to play and you learn how to compete doing all that. And then you, we just follow that up until when we get to the draft and we're looking at players. We, you know, we've taken a lot of guys that we, and we've said, hey, we, we need to make this position change because this guy's going to fit in another spot. Uh, but to me, that's that's the way you you hit on players. So to me, it was always about trying to take tools and we thought you had a guy going to have a big league uh, impact. Yeah. It sounds like that. That opportunity to see JT Romuto playing football weighed heavily into you determining his makeup as well. Yes, it did. I, I, I saw him again. I literally saw him carry the ball. Third, he got the ball. I got the ball in their own 20 with about four and a half, five minutes left in the game. He carried the ball. He took the snap, deep snap, and carried the ball 13 consecutive times. And I never saw him throw one pass. I have no idea if he, you know, what kind of arm he had. I had no idea anything other than I said, this guy. This guy's a tough dude. He took shots and he kept, you know, kept, but he made plays and he used his legs and he used his head and he, he just took his team down the field. And I thought, you know, and this is when it's on the line. You get to see him when it's on the line. It's like watching a basketball player, maybe late in games when you watch him go to the free throw line, right? 
and the guys who clang it or whatever, you know, you just, you just watch the athletes and who can get it done. Well, he got it done. I spoke a lot to me about him. And then having the opportunity to find that, that coach who, who was the AD. So he was at the baseball game. He was football coach slash AD. And when I got to talk to him, he said, well, you know, I've never had a guy made this good. Those are things that are invaluable when you talk about drafting a player because we all know that the road to the big leagues is not a straight path for 99% of the guys. It's a jagged road that they've got to deal with and handle and handle adversity and handle failure. And this guy was really not that excited about failing. So <laughs> he was excited about being really good. And so that's what you look for when you're out there. You look for guys who play other sports. And you know that they like, first of all, they like athletics because they're playing other sports. They're not just, you know, they're not just nailed down to this one little thing about I've got to have my own little hitting coach, my own little fielding coach, and this is what I'm going to be in this one little spot. They just limited themselves so much. So I would encourage anyone listening to this podcast that's playing sports at young ages, play every sport you want to play and play it a lot and play it on your own and don't look for somebody to tell you everything you need to do. Try to figure some stuff out on your own and just go out and play. I I like, and I'll pass it back to Joe. I love the message. It's not a linear process. It could be the least linear process known to man right now in terms of making it. And when these, these families, they get all these throwing coaches and swing coaches. And to me, when they do that, it tells me that they believe it is a linear process that if you do A to get to B and that's not the makeup of a baseball player in my mind. It really is not. I mean, I've seen it so much. I've just, I've seen, you know, just different things happen where guys, you know, they, they just, they think they're this and whatever we change them. And what, what, and, but the whole thing is I want a guy who's hungry, who's eager, who wants to, who wants to succeed and wants to be a player and loves to play and has the makeup to go play and is not afraid to fail so to get out there and, but I think as parents, we're so afraid for our children to fail that we hover over them to the point that if anything goes wrong and you ask someone about it, I've had it happen many times on a player, you know, talking with them and their parents. And the minute I ask a question, parents answer. And I ask another question, the parents answer. And I finally have to say, excuse me, but could we just, I'd like to hear what your son has to think about this because he's the one getting ready to do it. But I think as parents, it's just a natural thing that we want to, we want to protect our children. Well, in, in sports, you know, and, and I will tell you, especially you get on the mound or you get in a batter's box, there's nowhere to, nobody protects you. You put, you get in a wrestling match in high school and you walk out there, there's not a thing your parent can do. They can yell and scream and holler all they want for you. But at the end of the day, you got to get it done. And that's what it's about as, as kids growing up and playing. They've got to be able to handle these things, make adjustments. And how do they learn that? They learn it through failure, learn it through doing it. But if we're always there to protect them and, and we, they can't even, we don't even have to speak for themselves, much less do for themselves, how in the world they're going to develop. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a hard process. But as, and the greatest thing we can do as a parent is just be there, sit back and be there and let the, let the young man or young lady do what they need to do to, to figure it out. I like that. Joe, go ahead. That was great. Yeah. Steve. Yeah. Obviously great messages by, by Stan and his, uh, his window wisdom and knowledge is great that we're able to pass it along here today. Uh, Stan, another guy I want to talk about, cause when I was out in Arizona, um, I developed a pretty good rapport with, with Zach Allen of the Diamondbacks. We of course know Zach from when he was in Miami and even when the, when the Marlins played the D-backs here in Miami, I got a chance to talk to him the day after he pitched for like 15 minutes and out there I did the same, uh, you know, I, purposely I told my boys, I want, you know, when you just like what tickets, what games you want to go to? I said, I want to go a day where Zach Gallon's not pitching because I want to talk to him and I want to go against the Phillies because I want to see JT. So I was able to accomplish both those objectives that day. And and just talking to Zach and I, I mentioned to him because uh, uh, about the draft, you know, I said about his process, of course, he was drafted, I think the third or so round by the Cardinals. Marlins, of course, got him in the trade and then flipped him for Jazz Chisholm. But a guy like, like Zach, I always found him very interesting, even when he was a Marlins prospect, because there was a lot of people, you know, they're like, man, this guy's a five. He's a solid rotation guy. Then other scouts, this guy's a two. Like there was so much variance. Normally you could kind of say, guy throws 98, 99, three plus pitches. This guy projects as a one or two. Uh, but Gallon was a unique guy. So what do you kind of remember about Zach uh, from the 
the year he was drafted. And and talk about guys that you might have had a real eye on when you were scouting. You didn't draft him, but you acquired him in trades based on really liking that player uh, when they were coming out of, uh, you know, when they were entering a draft. Gallon was, uh, again, another makeup guy that um, we all, you know, he could always keep the ball on the plate. Uh, one of the things, too, I think, you know, through all this process, you know, that we've gone through in the last 20 years or whatever, the radar guns become such a crazy thing about, you know, we think velocity equates to where they're, what kind of starter they are. And Zach Gallon's a guy that, you know, he's got plenty of velocity. He's got enough to get the ball where he needs to get it. But, he, he, he has command and he has pitches and he has sequencing to pitches and he understands pitching and he's not afraid and he keeps the ball on the play and he puts the hitter on the defensive because it's attack, attack, attack. So Gallon, while he wasn't, that's probably why he wasn't a first round pick because he probably didn't show a big enough arm. But as we got him, when we saw him with the Cardinals, we really liked him because we thought, you know, he does have pitches to start. And anytime you're trying to do a trade thing, I think you're, you know, from the pitching standpoint, you want to go, all right, let's try to get start. Unless you're getting a closer, you're saying, let's, let's try to get a starter here. If we can get a starter out of this, because starters are so valuable just for innings pitched and for the fact that you're going to need several of them during a big league season. And they're kind of hard to find. So we felt like he could be a starter. And, and the fact that he could keep the ball on the plate, and that he was not afraid, and that he had pitches. And if you watch him pitch today, you know he he, he can go get big velocity. If he, I say big, he can go to ninety five if he wants or six. But when he's ninety three, ninety four, and he's on the edges, which he tends to be, and he can command his breaking ball, and then he's got to change up off of it. There's a lot of things that make a good major league pitcher, and it's not all velocity. Velocity is one piece of it. So we just saw a lot of things about him. And then, again, as we've talked about, who he was, just the makeup of who he was. He's not a guy that really enjoys much failure. And, you know, I found if people really don't like failure, they'll kind of figure out a way not to have to deal with a lot of it. And so he was a guy that wasn't afraid to fail, but because of that, he didn't fail a lot. So you're seeing a very successful major league pitcher. And I think we had hit him just before he really blossomed in St. Louis. And thankfully, you know, it allowed us to, to move him. And, you know, there was a big, going back to him, I know I'm talking a lot here, but going back to him, there was a big controversy in the room because there were people wanted to keep Zach Allen, you know, and Chisholm had been, you know, not a, he had failed some. We'd seen him perform, though, in the Arizona Fall League. But there was a lot of questions whether or not that trade should be made. But as it's turned out, excuse me, excuse me, it's turned out they've both been very good major league players. So really didn't miss either way we went on that one. But Gallon's a, he's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Stan, how about uh, just in general of uh, a guy, does anyone come to mind that, man, I want to draft this player so badly, we don't get him, but you get him in a trade within a relatively short window? I mean, in a couple of years. Well, he's he, he's he's really probably as as good a one. You know, we, we liked him out of the draft. Again, we thought you know we thought he had good ability, um, but he's probably as good a one as you as you as you want to talk okay. about. You know, um, as far as when I was over there again, thinking back is again, we felt like he would fit into the rotation and he would fit. We just didn't know where because we thought he was still on the rise, still on the come, as you would say. So we still felt like, you know, who knows where this guy will end up. As it's turned out, he's got to be at least a two, if not a one, I would think now, the way he's pitched. But, um, yeah, I mean, how do you get much better than that when you make a deal? Uh, but, but again, a lot, a lot of the stuff that we did on the trades did come from what we saw as these guys as amateurs and guys we liked, guys we wanted. And then, as it turned out, for whatever reason, you end up, you end up getting him, and, and it worked out pretty well. Yeah, while, while we're on the Gallon subject, because I asked him this as well. If, if anyone watched Gallon pitch a year ago or two years ago, he was very much a reason for the pitch clock. Zach Gallon, because I sometimes would time him, he would wait 35, 40 seconds between pitches. And even though he was having success, he was so methodical. He was Traxel-like, basically. And people were wondering, how is Zach Gallon going to adjust to 15 seconds or 20 seconds? 
And I asked him about it because he now he's one of the top pitchers in National League. It's like, and he was like, it wasn't that big of a deal. It was just, you know, I just had to get to, once he found his rhythm, he was, you know, he, he was ready to go. He was able to make, you know, the muscle memory and the, and the adjustment physically. Uh, and you being a pitching guy, how much is that where a guy can completely change their rhythm of ha- their approach uh, based on a rule or just on whatever the situation calls for? Well, again, the makeup guys can, and the guys, you know, the guys who have ability can, if they want to. And I would tell you that in Zach Gallon's case, he, he ought to be thanking the, the people, you know, in charge that made that change. Cause I think it's really helped him command the ball better as he's gone. He's just got nothing but better. And so very few pitchers that I know, you know, that were actually human rain delays out there were very good in terms of commanding the ball one pitch, one pitch to the next. It's just hard because, you know, you've got to refocus. And, but when you're getting the ball, getting the ball back and you're back to the plate, and you're keeping your eyes on the plate, it's much easier to get into a rhythm and get throwing the ball. And you can make adjustments off that. But if you're waiting 30, 40, 50 seconds between pitches, you've got to rethink that whole thing. You've got to start the whole process over. So I think Gallon helped himself a lot. You know, he was a slow worker and there have been some slow workers who've been successful, but I would tell you most of the guys that are successful. You, you take the Maddoxes, the Kershaws, the guys like that, they, they get the ball and they throw it. But as soon as the ball leaves their hand and the ball gets to the plate, whatever happens tells them immediately what they want to do with the next pitch. So they don't have to sit and take time to figure out what's going to be the next pitch because they, they have instincts to pitch. So based on what just happened, they know what to do next. So it's a matter of getting the ball back and getting it going. So I think the rule has helped a lot of the pitchers keep the ball on the plate better. And uh, I would say Gallon is a classic example of that. Yeah, I think the flip side, Alex Manoa, the, the Blue Jays, I think he it threw his rhythm off, and then he's had some really bad minor league outings, but then a really good one. Uh, you know, this guy was a Cy Young finalist a year ago in, in Toronto, and and he's I think he, as far as I've read, he was really struggling. So that I think that might have been just the rule getting to the guy's head and just messing him up. I would tell you that's that would be my guess. Now again, I don't know. I don't know Alex Mano at all, but I, I know who he is. I watched him pitch, and I would tell you that yes, this is probably from a mental standpoint been a bother to him. And so, and the thing that happens, and I'm not saying this has happened to him, but what can happen is, you know, when you fail and you're failing at the highest level, you know, you can start to look for reasons why, and sometimes you may find a reason that's really not a, a valid reason because I guarantee you, if Alex Mano got the ball and got back to work and just got his mind on doing what he's doing. I, th- I think, you know, I think he would be much better. So again, not knowing particulars of Alex Manoa, I don't want to, you know, generalize or speculate or whatever, but I would tell you that, that, you know, when you, when you start to struggle up there, there's a lot of things that enter into those guys' heads. And so I think this may have gotten into his head a little bit. Dave, you got anything? Yeah, I was, I was thinking myself, and and not to trivialize what he's going through, because he, like you said, he's at the highest stage, and all eyes are on him. But human beings have endured far greater obstacles than a pitch clock, you know, to overcome. And I, I have to think somebody who's climbed his way to the bigs and has been a Cy Young guy, he's got the mental makeup somewhere in there to uh, to overcome whatever it is he's going through. So I hope he gets back on track. He's a heck of a pitcher, without question. Um, now you're in your, you know, we, we talked about, you know, you spending time with your grandkids and, you know, in your, in your past life, you know, you'd be preparing for the trade deadline, the draft, uh, the all-star break. What would be your normal, what would be your normal schedule? Where would your mind be this time? You're not to bring you back into that world, but, uh, since we're talking about it, what would be your, what would be going on in that world for you right now? Yeah, and, and honestly, I kind of like to be brought back into that world some because I still love this crazy game. Is that you know that's why we're talking today. I've I've enjoyed this game since you know I'm 70 years old and started it when I was five. So I've I've enjoyed this game a long time. So yeah, I kind of I kind of thought a little bit, you know, just sitting here yesterday. I think it was because some friends of mine or I know are in the room, and um, so 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 one of the, I think from the job I did as a director, I think here's where here's where you want to be. And here's what goes in your mind as you're as you're preparing for this thing. You kind of got an outside idea of who you might, you know, who might be available to you. No matter where you're picking thirty or you're picking one, you're going to have an idea. You're just kind of what you know. But what you wanted to be able to do, our front board was like a hundred and maybe hundred and seventy-five 
guys that we'd have on that board. You say, well, that wouldn't last long. Well, it's kind of shocking how long that board will last because you can, you tend to think everybody sees the board like you do and, and they don't. Uh, so a lot of times you're, you, you know, I had a guy say one time, I hope everybody has a great draft. I just hope they don't take our players. So you would like your board to last. You hope your board holds up. But what we'd be doing now is just kind of making those final. We're getting into we're getting into getting the final board set up. I think the draft is what the ninth coming up. So we're now in the fifth. So we got like four days left. And so we've been preparing for this thing for a while. And I'm sure they're all now. Everybody's in the rooms and they're in that final room and they're making those final decisions and they're having. I wouldn't say heated debate, but now with the analyst people involved, there's probably more conversations about how does he fit analytically versus how he fits, you know, instinctually and physically and what, what his athleticism is. But when I actually did it, it was just more of the, you know, how do we in this room as scouts see this guy? But my job was that within two days of the draft that you could walk up and say, pick, pick player number 158 and point at him and say, tell me about that guy. And I could say six, two right-hander making balls his best pitch. Fastball's a little true. He's had a knee surgery. You know, he's had a one parent family. He's come from here. He's gone to there. He's got a girlfriend that's a little bit involved in this thing. I don't think she'll be an issue, but there's some stuff I could, I could dissect that guy for you. And to the point that, when it comes up, because you can't walk in there with questions. You can't walk in there with lack of knowledge. If you do, you're shorting your team. So my job was to walk in there with knowing everything I could about every one of those guys on that board. So I would go over that and go, you know, and again, I just did it all through the year because I'm reading reports and I'm reading them over again and I'm watching players and I'm seeing what they said. So whether it's pick 78 or 156 or whatever, I could give you a whatever. So that's that when I walked in, I was completely confident about knowing the players. And then it's a matter of working with the people when you actually get to get the board set like you wanted it. And then we would come back usually the morning of the draft. And I would, a lot of times what I would do is because I kind of knew what I wanted to do, but I, I didn't want it for public consumption. And so you'd have a lot of people coming and going in that draft room. And, you know, again, we're all wearing the same hat. I trust everybody, but at the same time, I want, I want, uh, you know, I want this thing totally kind of hush hush, and I don't want stuff leaving the room. So maybe middle of the afternoon with the draft at six or seven p.m., I might say, "Hey, you know, we need to. What if we have we ever thought of this?" And it might be where I'm getting ready to make a move to put the guy that I want in the spot that I want to get him so that we can get him. And he's never been in that spot. So just in case information was leaving our room, it wouldn't have been exactly what the information was going to be at the end. So maybe it was a little bit of a psychological game, but I, I trusted all our people. But again, you had a lot of people coming and going through there. So um I was just trying to get really ready. So, cause it, it is, it is the absolute most enjoyable day of the year and exciting day of the year when you step into that draft and you're ready to go and you have no hesitation because you've done everything humanly possible to be ready. And, and if you're less than that, I couldn't imagine walking in there being uncomfortable feeling. And I never want to feel uncomfortable. So right now they're really working through those names and really getting everything settled and get ready to pick, pick the guys because this thing can come at you pretty fast when it starts and you don't need to be hesitant at all. You need to be ready to go. I like that. And we got the free agency coming up as well. Uh, Mar uh, you know, we Joe covered the Marlins for a lifetime. Uh, is the Marlins must be buyers, right? Coming up. And I hate to, you know, put you in that spot to, to question or impose on it, but they've got to be thinking buying. They're up at the top of the league right now. And if so, who, 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 who or what type of positions should they have their eyes on? Well, I, I, you know, again, they, they've done a really good job. I mean, their starting pitching is, uh, uh, is, is solid. Um, they're in relief. I, to me, I, I think, you know, I think they've just got to figure out where maybe they've got a weak spot in the lineup, you know, or maybe they want to add a pinch hitter off the bench, add somebody off the bench, add a backup piece, um, you can't just wholesale change as you get into that spot. But 
you know, if it's if it's at a bullpen arm, if it's if it's, uh, I don't think it'd be a starting pitcher, but it may be another another bat. Maybe they're short or left-handed bat. I don't know exactly where they are, but but it's just it's just adding that piece that you think completes your club, and that you know those would be conversations they'll have prior to that time happening, and then they'll decide, hey, here's where we feel like we have a little bit of a weak spot, and they're just trying to shore up their weak spot, whatever it is, and so. You go in there, then you try to decide, okay, how willing are we, um, depending on who the club is we're talking to that, that has what we want, how willing are we to give up, you know, some of these prospects and where do we evaluate? And that's where your own scouts being out and evaluating your own people. One of the critical things to do in, in, in baseball is to know your players. You can talk about everybody else's players, but you won't know them as well as you'll know your own. So knowing who to keep, knowing who not to give up, know who you'd be willing to give up uh, that won't totally weaken your organization as you go forward. Uh, because, you know, people are not stupid. They're coming after your better guys and deciding, again, who's got the right makeup, who's the right guy, where are we weak in our organization, how do we keep a good, strong organization and still use our other pieces to move to get the piece that we want. It's critical. It's critical thinking, and it's – it's. Uh, you know, and it gets right down to the wire because you kind of come to that same thing at, at the trade deadline. you got to make it happen. And so it comes. That's why you see it a lot of times come down to the wire because you're wanting to hold a piece. And that's the very piece they're trying to get from you to get what you want. So it's critical time. But it's a fun time. and It's an exciting time as well. I would imagine the advanced scouts have got to be crucial in that because they would know whatever teams are covering. They would know that system intimately. They would. And that's that's their job is to know them. And again, you know, we, they've had the additional thing now. Again, I, I don't I can't speak a lot to analytics because I was not there except for the one year with the analysts. But the analysts, I'm sure, are doing the same thing. They're analyzing everybody from a black and white standpoint and the numbers and all that. And then they have the the scouts who come in, you know, with, with more of the emotional thing and, and, and you know, of the, the makeup and the instincts about a player that maybe the analysts don't have. Well, I'm sure they don't have. They have the black and white numbers on a player. But together, they kind of kind of to bind that together and say, okay, here's a piece that we can maybe get that, that fits where we like and maybe we think that they do. And then the analyst says, hey, I, I like the way the numbers look. And so maybe we can go find and go get that guy. So the, the, the advanced scouts, this is their big day. That that trade deadline is their day because they are literally, you know, they've they've gone through those clubs and they know them and they should know that club backward and forward. Yeah. Yeah, Dave, I could answer more. Uh, the, the Marlins, they're looking at this um, uh, Jameer Candelario of the of the Washington Nationals, switch hitter, plays third base. Uh, he's, a, he's a guy, but he fits kind of what Stan's talking about. They're, they're looking for, you know, a complimentary piece. They kind of got their team. You know, and and Stan could speak to how when you when you add the piece to make the playoff run, it's not always that it's a piece that kind of can help the guys along, not be the new guy. Uh, you know, I know Juan Soto can is a game changer type guy in the, a year ago, but a Candelario because Marlins also have to be careful with what they are willing to give up. This organization, but I also agree with Stan. I think they should be, you know, looking at some bullpen help mainly because they played so many close games yesterday, notwithstanding um, that their high leverage arms are being used a lot. And as, as everyone that's familiar with playoff type teams, the the bullpens are what, you know, really, really have to be fortified because they're leaned on super heavily uh, as you get to September and October. So, um, so that's uh, on the Marlins front, but Stan, I want, before we get out of here, I just wanted to ask you, you know, we, you, you were there 40 rounds, 50 rounds, now it's 20 rounds. And I remember in our conversations when you were when you were the director, you always try to get a catcher and you always like left-handed pitching, you know, when and you and you would get that run of pitching. Uh, but with 20 rounds, how would you kind of approach it? Does the fundamentals of your foundation of a draft still in place? You just may not get the, the depth numbers. Yeah, I would say it is. Pitch. I mean, you're still yeah. tr- Go ahead. You're still trying to take you're still trying. I'm sorry you broke up there a little bit. You're still trying to yeah. take impact. I mean, that's the whole thing is that you're taking 20 rounds. I still want to try to get impact all the way through the draft if I can. And we know once you get through the top 10 rounds, you know, then you've got a limited amount of money for the next, the next 10 picks that you would take unless you've saved money in those top 10. That's where that pool money comes together. 
And that's why we'd always try to take a guy maybe in that third, fourth round that maybe, you know, we still liked him, but we, you know, he may be a little bit out of favor for the industry. So we might, depending on the agent, be able to save, you know, maybe a hundred, maybe 150,000 or whatever. Um, and we could even do that at the top if we felt like we were pushing a guy a little bit up, but it would save us more money. But we always wanted money that we could use later on because, you know, I mean, there's plenty of guys taken after the 10th round, even after the 15th round that have big league value. But the way we would approach it would be, I think today, if we were doing 20 rounds, would be the same thing. Just line them up, how we like them, how we think they fit, you know, in terms of their top end, what their potential would be. I think what you've got to really adjust to now in this thing is like, hey, we've got to be ready. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, there's numbers of guys taken after the 20th round and when we were picking 50 rounds that were end up being pretty good players and end up having value in the, you know, I'm thinking like we took a guy one time in the 37th round named Seth Manus who ended up, we didn't sign and the end of the Cardinals, he was a middle guy for five or six years and Kendall Graveman still pitching. We took him in like the 30th round. Blake Trinan, who closed for the Dodgers for a long time, we had taken him in the 23rd round. So there's value after the 20th round. So one of the key things you have to do is you have to hopefully have your have your organization willing to give you whatever that you know, maximum amount of money is that you can give a guy. I think it's moved up to like 150 now, maybe after the after the 10th round. But whatever that is, to be ready as soon as this draft's over. You got to be on the phone to those guys because you you know you don't you want to try to sign some of these guys you really like that fell out of that top twenty round. So that's the one thing I was thinking about how 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 much we'd have to do to be ready to hit the ground running financially, knowing what our money was and knowing how many of those guys we wanted to sign because we're not real sure maybe how many of these top twenty you're going to sign, but you you know so you'd kind of want to know that and maybe you want to sign eight or 10 or 12 of those guys, but you know, every, there's 29 other clubs fighting for them too. So that's a little bit of the difference, but we would keep the same philosophy. I think in terms of the harder you can shoot at impact in this draft, uh, I mean, that's the amateur draft is absolutely the cheapest way to acquire impact talent. It just is. You want to go get surgery for 40 million, go get them. But you're going to spend what? I mean, if you're, I don't know, what's the top number in the draft? Maybe 15 million for the, for the Pirates. I don't know. I don't know what they're. Yeah, what they're I don't even know number. Last year, uh, uh, Jackson Holiday was a little bit over eight million. You know, for for number one one, but their pool has yeah. to be what? You know, 20, 20 as the one one. You know, so I don't know. Uh, yeah, you're right. Yes. You know, you're right. You because your second round pick, you know, sometimes better than that. Oftentimes better than that first round pick. When you start thinking about the pot, the impact you get out of the draft, and so you so you got your so your pool's ten million. Well, ten million is a fifth starter, fourth yeah. starter, one one of them. Yeah. Maybe it's an everyday player. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's work. So that's how you want. You know, that's how you hope your front office is thinking. Like we need to we need to empower these guys with every dollar we can, because. You know, if they have guys after the twentieth round they want to give one hundred and fifty grand to, then we need to make sure we 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 have that money set aside to do no matter the numbers because, you know, you miss on four or five and then you hit all of a sudden you hit one or two in a row that pitch out of your bullpen, and now then you're what are you what are, you know you're scrambling for a bullpen piece that you know at the deadline you wouldn't have to scramble for down the road you just you have to have commodity in your system. And that's the way to do it. The amateur draft is by far the cheapest way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, again, what Stan Meek brings to this podcast and what he's meant to this industry, his wisdom greatly appreciated. And and we certainly value everything he brings to our podcast. Before we get out of here, Dave, any final thoughts? Uh, And we'll, we'll wrap this up. Yeah. Just a quick, quick question as to that point. I mean, totally impressed upon our audience, the importance of the draft and in, in all your appearances on our show, the diligence it takes to be great at signing the right talent. It doesn't have to be the best talent. It's got to be the right talent. But my, my question is, with that being said, isn't it bad business for Major League Baseball to reduce the entry point of the very thing that fills it with all this great, young, inexpensive talent? I mean, they reduced the draft. 
Um, it's the only business model in the world. I'm still searching for it that reduced the entry point as a as a uh, reason or as a way to grow the game. It doesn't make sense to me. No, it it really doesn't. It's really kind of disappointing that, and it seems like we're trying to like we're taking you know, we know we've taken clubs off, you know, off the market and pushed them out. However many clubs they got rid of, uh, it's just not the way to do business. I don't think because. I mean, you, you want the, the more chances in this game. Again, there's a lot of failure in this game, so the more chances you have in this game, better. So I, I mean, I remember I started this thing when we had, I think, one year we drafted over 100 players, and an 89th round pick, and I cannot give you his name right now, but he was a junior college player out of Missouri, pitching the big leagues for quite a while uh, that we took in the 89th round. So they're out there. I mean, they're just out there. So to, to reduce the rounds, um, it really, you know, really makes it kind of tough. And it, it just, I don't think it's taking the game the right way personally, because like you say, you, you want it, you want an entry point somewhere. The more people you can get into it, the better, better off we are. So I hate to see that. Uh, but again, that's, uh, I, I just hope that we don't go any further down than 20. I wouldn't be shocked if somewhere we don't, but I hope we don't. Yeah. Yeah, that was it, Joe. That was a uh, that was a great answer. Yeah, yeah, and, and another great podcast as, as Stan delivers. Any final uh, uh, announcements for our audience, Dave? Yeah, just uh, want to thank our faithful audience. We should bump over that twenty thousand subscriber mark today. Seventy-two countries. We're ver- we're very consistent with the listenership in all seventy-two countries. Grassroots MLB front offices. Just uh, continue to download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. That allows us to continue to provide you great content every week here like joe does on man on second and joe great job again today we appreciate you episode 219 already so thanks for what you do no no thank you guys and 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 again thanks to stan meek and uh stan appreciate it buddy enjoy the the rest of this week and if you're out there hunting or or whatever uh have a good time doing that always a pleasure to have you on with us my friend i'll do it and i appreciate you guys having me yeah yeah and and with that unless any last things dave no, no, Stan, just hang on for a second after the show. You know the drill. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Uh, yeah, Dave already uh, teed it up. Uh, again, uh, we appreciate our listeners. We hope everyone's really enjoying this time of year. Hope that, you know, we, we you know, I mentioned on my Facebook page today. Enjoy life, people. You know, there's a lot out there, a lot of distractions, but keep an eye and a focus on enjoying life, enjoying baseball, enjoy your, your families in this time of year. And, um, you know, this is uh, a great forum that, that we have here on our, our network and we're growing it. Look forward to next time I talk to you, we will be well over that 20,000 uh, subscribers as we grow this and make this a, a special um you know, platform for people to really get some real high leverage baseball knowledge and life knowledge as well, we hope. And with that, I'm Joe Forsaro, Man on Second, and we are out of here.